Before the hate mail comes in, I'd just like to say as a trigger warning, this episode deals with Antonio Gramsci. He wrote from a cell as a political prisoner in fascist Italy using coded language on scraps of toilet paper. To put it lightly, he is hard to comprehend. To those listening who know his work well, I apologize for butchering it. And please get in contact with us. We'd love to have you on to discuss his writings in a future supplemental episode. Some of you may note that the language I'll quote sounds elitist. Consider this. The man sacrificed his life fighting for the dignity of the working class in the heart of fascist Italy. So to those listening who hate Gramsci because he's an elitist globalist, you're listening to the wrong podcast. We appreciate that you're venturing away from Timcast IRL, but we might suggest starting with our series on Israel or something a bit more accessible or else suck on the business end of a Ford Fiesta. <laughs> oh, yeah. So let's get to it. You are listening to the Intervention Podcast with Spicy Levi and Mike from Turn Leftist, so... How's it going? Good, man. Good. I didn't realize that Gramsci was that hated. I mean, from what I've seen of him, like, I, and again, I haven't read prison notebooks or anything like that, but I've seen some ideas formulated in, you know, various memes or essays. And I always thought he was pretty based, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah, this is the first I've heard of Gramsci hate. Yeah. I think it just comes from circles of academics because he is so difficult to read. And a lot of people get traumatized by being forced to read him. You're listening to the third or fourth. I guess it depends on if we're calling that intro as part of it, but whatever installment of our reading capital series. So welcome back to our second or third, whatever fucking project we're on right now, running in parallel. Let's get to it. So Marx was a philosopher, a literary scholar, an historian, an economist, a polemic, an artist, and even more. His writings embodied many of these at often contradictory ways to his approach. But in doing so, he opened space to critique an understanding of concepts taken for granted. This is his method for interrogating the fetish, getting beyond appearances, beyond common sense, to understand the contradictions at heart. Writing in a prison cell where the Italian fascists who had hoped he would rot away, Antonio Gramsci articulated his unorthodox approach to Marxism. Among these prison notebooks, he wrote, quote, all men are philosophers, end quote. But most, he continued, quote, accept the world passively and without care, end quote. This philosophy of the masses he called common sense. Marxists, he argued, though vigilantly reflective in thought, developed a, quote, higher philosophy, end quote. Marxism, he argued, quote, does not seek to sustain the simple people in their primitive philosophy of common sense, i.e. keep them ignorant so they can passively accept the dogment of Marxism, but instead to lead them to a higher view of life. If it asserts the need for contact between the intellectual and the simple people, it does so, not in order to limit scientific activity and maintain unity at the low level of the masses, but precisely in order to build an intellectual moral block which makes political possible the intellectual progress of the masses and not only of a few groups of intellectuals. Uh, that's one sentence, guys. <laughs> <laughs> to Gramsci, this is the core of politics and a driver of the historical process, the attempt to, quote, unify theory and practice, end quote. Just reading that section and that formulation of his thought, 
I can see why people are, draw a through line between Lenin and Gramsci. I mean, we talk about this a lot in the context of the line that these online MAGA communists and Pat Sox are taking. But the point is not of the vanguard party, of you know, the leading communist party, to kind of sink to the level of the common sense. I mean, and that's a good way to put it, of like this block of people is the most reactionary in the case that I'm talking about. It's to bring them along politically and intellectually as well. We're surrounded by these systems, these media projects, whatever it is. So it kind of generates just like this thought where most people, if they throw out like some inherently reactionary thought, they're going to expect a similar response when they're surrounded by a group of people because it's just, hey, this is what everybody is thinking, right? But like we as communists shouldn't say, we need to be like, okay, no, like, that's actually not how we should look at this situation. We need to bring you along progressively with us. And not in a condescending way either. It gets hard, right? Because you don't want to sound like you're talking down either. So it's like, it's tough. That's exactly it, Nick. That's the whole thing. Because I think what you're describing is also, it's called tailism, right? Where you tail the, the people. Because it's like, if you're talking about the mass line thing, um, it's where you are behind the people or is like, you know, reiterating the, the cultural struggle as opposed to like trying to reform it to be more progressive. But then there's also, I, th- I don't want to say it's called headism. I think that's, that's the wrong, but it's like, it's the opposite thing. It's like literally, like you're saying, being too condescending, like you're too far ahead of the people and you're trying to make them progress too much. And I guess it spawns too much of a reaction and mm-hmm. your revolution crumbles. And it's funny because whether or not you are a tailist or a headist or whatever the proper term is, uh, seems to only be determined after the fact by how successful or not your revolutionary project was. And where it becomes even more complicated in Gramsci's, I think, main criticism of Marxist-Leninist parties of his day is that it's really easy to become calcified in arguments if you're not constantly critical of why you're making those arguments. So there's a sort of common sense Marxist view that can develop that you don't realize has just become common sense, not that it's been critically analyzed and mm. reapplied. So, you know, what happens in Soviet Russia does not necessarily work in fascist Italy in terms of getting people on your side. Right. Now, there are those on the left who celebrate and dismiss Gramsci as too focused on the superstructure, meaning ideologies or how human beings imagine, articulate, and conceive of the world, rather than focusing on the base, meaning the material conditions for the productions of goods in society. There may be truth to this, but in these chapters I believe Marx revealed that he is interested in the realm of ideas or how human beings conceive of the world around them before they take their actions. Human beings possess the imagination to conceive of a radical departure from the contemporary world. At the same time, these ideas are created within the world as it exists. This is not to say the two are always in opposition to each other, though they often are, but rather to point out that they are one. Humanity develops ideas within the world, just as ideals created by past humanity shaped the world we live in now. In an uncritical approach, contradictions are smoothed over to present a one thing after the other narrative, something that at times Marx is actually guilty of. But swirling contradictions make up the dialectical approach. It's a lot harder. In these chapters... Marx takes us beyond the sphere of the market and idealized conceptions of exchange into the labor process, into the real world of contradictions. Marx's material time and space imprisoned him, but his methods 
provide a means of challenging the understanding of our own time and space. This is a point that Gramsci also noted, quote, The process of the creation of intellectuals is a long and difficult one, full of contradictions, of advances and retreats, of disbanding and regrouping, end quote. I mention this final point because I believe it serves as a reminder to all of us, every living, breathing human being, even Marx himself, got things wrong. As intellectuals, all of us, according to Gramsci, we are forced to conceive of the next world while trapped within the limited conceptions of reality dictated by the current world. Acknowledging this as true means having to be critical of all movements, of all states, or else fall prey to complacency, to the creation of common sense. In more practical terms, this means all politics comes down to balancing the possible and the ideal with a constant eye towards tactics and situational awareness. This means conceiving of humanity and its relationship to nature, reform and revolution, reality and idealism, practice and theory, and all the flavors of contradiction, we all struggle to unify. So I'm Levi. I guess we can go around, give our initial thoughts on this chapter before we begin diving in to volume one, chapter seven through nine. Um, I don't have any initial thoughts on the chapter. I just finally looked up that uh, what I was talking about with Mao. <laughs> just I'll allow myself to sound stupid and say that it was headism, um, but it was it's commandism. That's what it is. Headism, it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was a lot said that intellectuals actually struggled more with capital rather than a lot of like working class organizers because they once you get into it. I mean, maybe after chapters one through three. But once you get into it, like he's talking about processes that workers can relate to. So it is elitist just to say that they can't read it. I mean, the fucking Black Panthers, like we're learning to read through theory and shit like that. in some cases, you know, they never said, oh, like, no, it's reading theory is elitist. My impressions of this chapter are, you know, he's kind of interweaving some themes and ideas around like culture and nature. Um, that I think we're probably going to focus on a little bit more tonight, given what Levi has in the outline. But from the actual kind of nuts and bolts of the chapter, the chapters, I think it's stuff that we can actually understand. I think of all the sections we've read so far, it's definitely getting towards the point of becoming more approachable and understandable, just even on the surface level. Uh, and it's going to become even more so in the next chapter, which is why it was sort of, for very close listeners out there, why it was cut from this episode so we could focus more on it next episode. So. Marx begins chapter 7 by making an argument about man and nature on page 283. Quote, Labor is, first of all, a process between man and nature, a process by which man, through his own actions, mediations, regulations, and controls the metabolism between himself and nature. He confronts the materials of nature as a force of nature. He sets in motion the natural forces which belong to his body, his arms, legs, head, and hands in order to appropriate the materials of nature in a form adapted to his own need. Through this movement, he acts upon external nature and changes it. In this way, he simultaneously changes his own nature. So just to begin, what do we make of Marx's understanding of the concept of nature and its relationship to humanity? What I like what, about what Marx does in this chapter a lot, you were talking earlier about how I guess they were making scripture more accessible to people probably around the same time. And I picture them, I'm imagining them doing it with like 
with pictures because I imagine that people were illiterate. And so they probably had a lot of paintings and stained glass and stuff to do it. And with almost every paragraph, Marx does that same kind of thing. Like he gives a real world example. He talks about birds and bees and shit all the time. So he literally is breaking this down to that level for everyone. And it is kind of like my first theory book, you know? And I, so I like that he <laughs> does that. But it is cool that he just uh, explains that you have changed your role in that process. And also he explains that you can occupy multiple roles, even objects can. Like when he uses the example of the cattle, um, how it functions as both the, it's like an instrument and also the product itself and because of how you use it. Yeah. Thinking about the way he talks about man as a force within, not a force of nature, I think is really important to dwell on. He doesn't consider man to be anything greater than his surroundings. Right. I think he interprets man as mastering nature, but not independent of it. Because I think that last sentence that you ended on is kind of the key. So he acts upon nature and changes it because he has the power to do so. But he's also simultaneously changing his own nature. So it is kind of like a symbiotic reciprocal relationship. Don't act on the earth without some kind of reaction, essentially, to your own being on top of that. What I thought was also interesting about this part is that he keeps getting into it and he talks about work done by like insects, spiders and bees, like weaving and making honeycombs, right? And he says like they can create like these kind of perfect structures, right? Like the spider can weave a a cleaner fabric, I'm paraphrasing, than any weaver can do. And the bee can make like a more perfect hexagon than any architect. But those things do those things naturally. And I think what distinguishes us from those beings within nature is that we have the capacity for ideas. Humans would have this material need and be able to identify a way driven by that need to manipulate nature to serve that purpose. Yeah, that these things are constantly pushing against each other in some way. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if, it's, if I'm saying against necessarily, but working in tandem and in a lot of cases at this very basic level. It's really hard to pin down exactly what Marx is saying about nature here, but I think it is something that has become very essential for how we understand the world we're in today as we're really hitting the limits of the current state of the world. Everybody likes to make a like 20 yards of linen joke. I'm just going to... He has a real quick thing in here that I think touches on what Nick is saying. He says, The labor required for the production of the cotton, the raw material of the yarn, is part of the labor necessary to produce the yarn, and is therefore contained in the yarn. The same applies to the labor embodied in the spindle, without whose wear and tear the cotton could not be spun. So, I think that's what you're... Like, it does literally embody the labor, or else it would not exist in the first place. Like, any piece of raw material that was turned into something, whether it is the instrument itself or the final product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And man has to act upon nature to imbue it with value. It has to be like a conscious, deliberate action. I think it's worth actually reading this paragraph where he talks about the architect. Quote on two, bottom of 283 onto 284, we presuppose labor in a form in which it is exclusively human characteristic. A spider conducts operations which resembles those of the weaver, and a bee would put many a human architect to shame by the construction of its honeycomb cells. But what distinguishes the worst architect from the best of bees is that the architect builds the cell in his mind before he constructs it in wax. 
at the end of every labor process, a result emerges which has already been conceived by the worker at the beginning, hence already existed ideally. Man not only affects a change of form in the materials of nature, he also realizes his own purpose in those materials, and this is a purpose he is conscious of. It determines the mode of his activity with the rigidity of a law, and he must subordinate his will to it. So there's a lot going on about the notion of the ideal concept within labor. And he sort of edges on this without saying it, but there's something about breaking down that relationship between the laborer and the final product that creates an alienation if he's claiming this is part of our nature. I don't know if I'm willing to go as far as Marx does in claiming that it's our, our nature to make things, but there is something there. We've had that conversation before in like various chats, and I guess the way I look at it, and I'm not married to this idea, but I have always been of the opinion that humans want to be productive, maybe not productive in the capitalist sense of productivity. If you could kind of remove kind of the definitional thing and just think about how you could kind of vaguely think of productivity, right? Like I could consider me writing a podcast as productive, even though I'm not making money for my capitalist boss when I'm performing that. But that's something that I enjoy. My sister does art. Is that productive? So, I mean, I think it's still humans producing things, but it's again, for what purpose are they being produced? You know, so I, I do think work is work again, not within the capitalist sense is probably part of who we are, but it's just in what context is that activity taking place, I think is what really kind of drives the conversation around that. And it, this is always dangerous when you're making such grand claims about an entire species. But human beings do generally want to feel like they're contributing to the world. We have some sort of drive to create and feel productive. We definitely feel insulted if we're told we're not being productive. I think that touches on like the bigger point, which I was not getting at earlier when I was saying that like people change their nature to make themselves a laborer once they start doing labor. and. I mean, I guess that's true to an extent, but it really doesn't even get into the extent to which people do it when they really fetishize it. When you get to like the, sh the social, um, not either stigma, if you have a bad job, or the social praise that comes with having a great job, the one you can brag about that makes a lot of money or just has a lot of prestige. But that even applies to things like you were saying, Nick, like things that you do that make no money. Yeah, maybe there's some prestige for having like a, a niche, tanky podcast online. Probably not. It probably is more like painting. It's like one of those things you're doing for no pay that you just feel like you need to get out of you for some reason because you're right. like an, an obsessive. But um, <laughs> ouch, <laughs> bro, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> no, I know, I know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that really um, it touches on the broader point of like how people really inherit this as their identity. Yeah, that's just a better way to think about it. But I also wanted to touch on the alienation thing because I pulled up the quote where he starts to get at that because he says, uh, I, I think that also comes with when you have like the bad job and you have the job that you really don't identify with. That is like the furthest thing from the thing that you want to do in your free time, just because you have to like, you feel like a compulsion, the inner compulsion, as opposed to the external compulsion of your material needs. I mean, um, but he says, quote, besides the exertion of the bodily organs, the process demands that during the whole operation, the workman's will be steadily in consonance with his purpose by the nature of the work and the mode in which it is carried on, and the less, therefore, he enjoys it as something which gives play to his bodily and mental powers, the more close his attention is forced to be. And he's basically just saying, like, the less enjoyable the work is, the harder it is to pay attention to it. 
obviously. And that's something that like everyone instinctively knows. If you've worked for five minutes at anything boring, like you absolutely know this. So it is funny. Like in some ways, Marx is very good at like describing simple concepts uh, in the most wordy ways possible, but also like breaking down intensely high concepts that are hard to understand in some really good ways. So I find that really interesting because there seems to be a sort of struggle in the argument that he's making. So he says that work within the capitalist system can be alienating and it becomes drudgery. So what does that mean that work looks like in the post-capitalist society? Because he's not claiming it's going to go away, it sounds like. He's claiming there's a natural tendency for human beings to work. But what does that mean? I think if you want to tie it into alienation and you look at something like socialist construction in the USSR, I mean, I think you can look at periods where they were able to get people on board and really feel like they were part of actually doing something as part of a society, as part of a community on like a mass level. But you don't have that individual alienation of like, I'm just going to work for this boss at this crushing job. I'm actually contributing towards building something. And I have an engineering degree. I don't do engineering anymore. What could actually get me back into it was if we did something like, you know, a socialist government and we have these environmental works project. That's something I could get excited about. If as a society, I could feel like those skills that I learned a long time ago could be put to use towards buffering a community against floods or something like that. In that context, that would change how I looked at that job just because it felt like I was contributing and working towards something on a community level rather than just getting enough to pay my mortgage. And that sort of reminds me of when people talk about working in nonprofit and they're the true believers. They're getting paid, but they're not getting paid very well. And they're being exploited based on their passion and how they believe they're making a difference. I work in a field that's adjacent to nonprofit. And there's something more honest, I think, about that small business approach where they're like, this is just an enterprise. We're just making money and we're paying you more than this nonprofit's going to pay you because we know this is a job. You can go home afterwards. Right. There is a natural inclination to do work that you feel like really matters. But then capitalism also knows that. And so they want to make you believe that your work really matters. They want you to believe that you're a family here. And I wanted everyone to have an ability in the company to feel as if they had a sense of belonging. And the currency of trust inside the company was that we were here for one another. So listen to this. Starbucks went public in 1992. What you're producing is really good for everybody. There's something to also be said for just knowing that some work is alienating and just being willing to do it for a short amount of time. And I think that's the case with a lot of things that they just need to be done. What's the thing people say that somebody always has to dig ditches or what do they say? It's like the typical capitalist. Always line. need ditch diggers. Yeah. And that is true. I mean, you guess like the waste management of like human waste is a thing. Like nobody wants to deal with literal shit, but that is something that has to be done. Yeah. I mean, like if it had to be done, like it was for the betterment of society, like if we could actually divide it in such a way, but that's not the way anything works. It's like you always have to be pushed to work an eight-hour day because that is the quote-unquote convention, getting back to like Gramsci's definition of the common sense, which is just basically what people will fucking tolerate uh, you know, when being oppressed by their overlords. If you didn't have to be pushed constantly by capitalist overlords seeking to not just make the profit but increase their profit year over year, people could tolerate a lot of really alienating jobs for a reasonable amount of time that could actually subsist society. Well, I mean, I, I want to frame it almost as a material reality of well, a lot of people have bought into 
this sauce. Like whether they really believe it in their heart at hearts, they're like taking pride in this drudgery work of like working for, you know, 12 hours a day. It's like people wear it, a badge of honor. That kind of sucks. And it's like, well, this is America. I, you know, I'm a hard worker, blah, 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 blah. But they get, it's so pervasive in the superstructure. It becomes a material reality that we have to deal with if we're going to actually do anything because we need the masses of people to like be cool with socialism, the capitalist work ethic, right? That a lot of people have bought into despite being able to reconcile that with feelings of alienation that they absolutely do have. There is a Marxist tendency to say, oh, you know, you shouldn't predict the future, right? Because that's anti-Marxist in a sense that, you know, you're dealing with material reality and things like that. It's like, well, I mean, I think that in our specific case, especially, we have to be able to paint a more positive future with relation to work and society to break people out of this ideological ferment that they're in right now as a result of American capitalism. We're actually all still talking about these sort of contradictions that we have to face between an idealized motion and a material reality. Just changing all the material realities tomorrow, we wake up and suddenly there's a communist structure. Doesn't mean that everybody's going to buy in immediately and it's going to stick around. Let's say there's a giant strike. We seize the means of production. We're all working at this steel factory. We kick out all the managers. We kick out all the owners. And then we keep working, but then we sort of slow down and think like, wait, is this really what we want? And then there's the, the people that grumble and say, like, oh, things worked better when we had managers. And if you have that grumbling and you have that non-idealized notion of what the thing is supposed to be before it's taken over, it can really fall apart. So you need to know what you're building before you build it. Mm -hmm. And you can only use the bricks and the material that are around you. Uh, and that's why, to go back to the manifesto, I mean, Marx talked about this process of resting from the bourgeoisie by degrees the, the structure of society and the means of production <laughs> just to your point of it doesn't happen overnight a lot of western leftists in particular will celebrate the revolution but not the painstaking effort that goes into construction after the fact and like feudalism didn't just switch like in a binary fashion to capitalism there's still vestiges of the old society that you have to deal with i mean there's still prop there's still vestiges of feudalism that we're still dealing with you know it's a process it's a process and it's a process that requires constant vigilance you can never really stop examining which makes it all that more susceptible to corruption i guess is a, a way of thinking about it you know, after this revolution happens, you really feel the need to solidify the gains that you've made, but you don't want to stamp down on dissent from the direction that it's going. It's the contradiction of existing socialism. Mm -hmm. And it's a dangerous contradiction to be in. The Cuban example against homosexuality is one of those perfect examples where they made that mistake early on. They constructed a ideology that was anti-homosexual and that was wrong. And they later admitted that and went back and apologized for it. You'll hear all about the, the claim of anti-homosexual trials in Cuba, but you don't realize like, yeah, what were they doing in America at that time? Like things weren't great for gay men yeah. in Florida. I mean, they're not great for gay men in Florida today. Speak for yourself, honey. <laughs> <laughs> but now in Cuba, you can be a family of 10 dads. 
Maybe it's not what you're used to, but sometimes a family doesn't have to be a mom, a dad, two kids, a dog, and a house in the suburbs. The contemporary family can include a stepmother or stepfather. Sometimes there are two moms or two dads. A family can be several children and a loving aunt or uncle. A family can also be a grandmother, her grandkids, and a helpful nanny. A family can be ten dads. That's it, just ten dads with no kids. Yeah. I mean, literally, though, to make a more serious example, because I think that's a reference to like a skit from like years ago or whatever. So we had a uh, Pastors for Peace caravan come through to talk about Cuba. They talked about the family code. And there was an there's a real example where they had a gay couple and a lesbian couple, and they kind of came together to have biological children. But they also, in the process of that, decided that the four of them could function as a family unit. To raise these children. Horrific. The horror. <laughs> I know. Like, imagine a kid having four loving fucking parents, right? Oh, terrible. <laughs> That's legal in Cuba. All this is just to say is that the ideology changes over time and you have to learn and get better, right? But like, that is a new benchmark for that society, you know, and there's going to be reaction against it too, I'm sure. It's one step closer to this ideal notion of the new family as it would exist in post-capitalist right. society, whatever that would right. look like. And we're limited by in our imagination because we currently live in the capitalist society. Yeah, and we're fucking banning books. Immediately when you said that, Nick, um, Levi, you don't have any kids, do you? Not that I know of. Okay. <laughs> I have no children. No. <laughs> None that you worry about on a daily basis is the important part here. But like, no, immediately when you said that, Nick, I was like, man, the relief that they must feel just like knowing that if something happens to them, any, any of those four parents, that like their kids will be taken care of by a house full of loving parents as well. Like just as a parent in a quote unquote traditional nuclear family, it's like, I worry all the time. What will happen if I like just get into a stupid car accident or something? And like, and my kids are left without a dad. There'll, there'll be another dad, probably another few months. It's fine. In that meantime, like it'll be really rough for them. And I worry about them a lot. Right. You make a good point, Levi saying that like, there is that vision of what the post capitalist family structure would look like. And these guys who are like lamenting the death of the nuclear family as if it's something to strive for, it's like, no, that is like a barely functioning model. And I think the more conditions get dire, you may see families that bring in roommates that then become family members because they just can't make ends meet anymore. Like all kinds of things happened in the depression that people don't talk about nowadays. But like there were a lot of non-traditional family structures going on even then. Also to the point of like when we talk about human nature and what that is, read Engel's Origins of the Family, caveat, you know, go in with the understanding of like when it was written in his sources, et cetera, et cetera. But there is a lot of good work done to kind of look at what human nature produced in terms of family structures when essentially like entire clans took care of kids and they were all part of the same family unit. And it was kind of the community's responsibility to take care of children. And I would say that that model or variations of that model have been around in terms of human history a lot longer than the nuclear family, which is really just a product of bourgeois society more than anything. Since you mentioned Engels and the origins of the family, I think it's important to note that that's an incredibly troubled text in terms of a history. But I think the theory behind it is still very true in that he's materializing something which we take to be common sense, which is the family. Mm -hmm. To build off of what Mike was saying, I mean, we still have histories that we even remember in certain communities of untraditional families. I mean, it's hard to speak about the African-American tradition without thinking of 
slavery and the forced families and fictive kinship that had to create in order to survive emotionally this sort of being between property and humanity within the United States. The family is a unit that's constantly defined by its material surroundings. It's not nature. Mm -hmm. Speaking on the methodology of history, Marx wrote the following in a note on page 286, quote, Writers of history have so far paid very little attention to the development of material production, which is the basis of all social life, and therefore of all real history. Now, on the surface, this contradicts the argument uh, Marx made just about three pages before, wherein man must imagine his actions before they execute them. So what is the relationship between the material world and the limitation of man's actions within them, and what role do ideas play in this space? To give a little context in here, I know that there are academics that pick on this quote and say, in order to give Marx the credit of the doubt, that he's maybe overstating his case here intentionally because he's diving into a reality within academia that they were not interrogating this at all. Therefore, he's overstating the case because it's been so understated beforehand that it does contradict something he was saying before, but it still fits into his larger argument. I think it goes back to a little bit of what I was saying on the previous point as well, because the the idealist notion, right? There was a pretty good article. It kind of just explains the idealist notion versus the materialist notion of history, right? If you want to talk about building a house, cut down wood, and you know you construct this this structure, right? The idealist would say that basically God put it into your head to build a house, whereas Marx would say the real fundamental need of shelter would drive you to look at your surroundings and try to figure out how you could build some structure to keep you out of the rain and keep you warm out of the materials that surround you. So the material fundamental need drives the idea rather than the idea driving the action. The first example you gave where God gave them the concept in order to build a house, you could complicate that further by saying they live in a material world wherein they give value to their judgments based on a God that they know about because of their material existence as this kind of religion. You're not claiming that person didn't have that idea, even though they attribute it to a God. It's just that their material reality means that they attribute their thoughts to something in their surroundings, which is the notion of a God. I think ultimately like where we're getting is that I don't think you want to double down too hard on this or this, there's an interplay here, right? I still would take the position that the material reality drives it, but you you can't exclude and ignore the role of ideas either. It's that interplay between them, I think. Because it's ultimately the the play of ideas that's going to get us beyond the material conditions that we're currently in, even as those ideas are formed within the material conditions we currently have. Right. Life under capitalism sucks because I feel that every day. That's a material reality. It's like, what can we imagine that's better? I don't think I'm making this up, but I've heard this image of the cage. So if you're in a cage, you can definitely see past your bars, but you can't see over the horizon. So you can push your cage even further, but you're never going to actually see the end until you get there. And that's sort of 
where we're trapped in our material world in terms of our ideas. We might be able to see beyond the cage, but we're not going to see over the horizon. So on page 289, we get some very purple prose from Marx. Quote, a machine which is not active in the labor process is useless. In addition, it falls prey to the destructive power of natural processes. Iron rusts, wood rots, yarn with which we neither weave nor knit is cotton wasted. Living labor must seize on these things, awaken from the dead, change them from merely possible into real and effective use values. Bathed in the fire of labor, appropriated as part of its organism, and infused with vital energy for the performance of the functions appropriate to their concept and to their vocation in the process, they are indeed consumed, but to some purpose, as elements in the formation of new use values, new products, which are capable of entering into individual consumption as means of subsistence or into new labor process as means of production. <laughs> like really heavy shit. Yeah. Why does Marx bother using such dramatic, grand language to describe the relationship between labor, machinery, and the production of commodities? And is it even fair to accuse Marx here of kind of romanticizing the concept of work? Because this is work under capitalism, he's describing. This isn't idealized work. Because this is a continued theme that comes up throughout the book, right? Like where, you know, you have this idea of life and death. He references vampires raising these things from the dead. And it does romanticize labor a little bit. I guess the way I look at it is the, his whole point here is that labor is the source of value. And I think this really drives that home. The workers are the embodiment of the power to make society run and also change it. It's just sort of this contradiction that I think he's trying to hold where the labor itself is valuable like you said, it is the creation of value under the system. And in the future, it has to continue existing, I think, to build off of Mike's point of there's always going to be labor out there that's somewhat alienating, even if it's for a greater good than it's put towards right now. So there is something romantic about labor in the Marxist sense, if you buy into that concept. But you could also very easily use the same language to argue a liberal consensus diversity history where you know, you as a black man really should be proud of America because it was your ancestors as slaves that built this country. Shouldn't you be so proud? Oof. Exactly. And there are Marxists that would write things like this that are hard to read. But it was attempting to create a sense of hope in a community they were attempting to convince to be more radical. I'm not going to continue on that point, although it's, it is really well taken what you just said. But I want to also bring back the point of the concept that he introduces early on is that it's socially necessary labor time is what is valuable, right? And what is socially necessary in terms of labor time is also subject to change. And that's what kind of like brings some balance to the market, even within this context. If a product is not needed, there's no value there, even though somebody worked on it because you can't fulfill or receive kind of the 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 exchange value out of that transaction because there's no need for it, right? But it's more of like a labor-centered supply and demand, at least as I read it. Especially in this age of continued automation and AI, socially necessary human labor could become far less. Like you would still need labor probably at some level to keep everything together, but what's socially necessary in the context of trying to keep everybody alive, happy, and healthy 
housed and fed, it could be very different. That's actually like a hopeful way to look at it. I kind of like that he uses such dramatic language to describe all these like really banal processes, at least in this instance, because it seems to be that's, again, his whole thing that he's doing here is like really elucidating all of this stuff and making it overly clearly. But I almost wish people had the ability to really think about their work and everything that they're doing in these dramatic concepts to their furthest ends. Mark starts off this chapter talking about everything from the iron that you pull out of the iron ore veins in the ground to the labor that goes into making it a raw material to the finished products that you make out of it. And he, he talks about the, the externalities, like the byproducts that it produces. And it's like people are, are, are unable to think about the thing that they're doing in its finished product, like in its totality in their workday, because you can really only occupy so much of your brain with whatever you're doing. Like you just can't think about that much. And just like our inability to think about everything at once, our inability to track the individual molecules of pollution that your factory produces doesn't make you any less accountable when one of them lands in someone's organ and gives them cancer and kills them. You're still accountable. We just aren't able to hold you accountable. And that's the whole problem I have. All of these things have to be done in a way, and for capitalists to kind of tout themselves as the arbiters of objective good, the system that is producing the best good for humanity, while totally ignoring all externalities of like pollution, it's the thing that kind of gives up the whole game. It's like pulling back the curtain on The Wizard of Oz. What both of you are touching on is something that we will be able to talk a little bit more on in the next reading about The Working Day. But it's the sort of radical nature of understanding how we as laborers are being pushed beyond what's necessary and what it means to fight back. Marx defines the sole overarching purpose of capitalism on page 293, quote, his aim is to produce not only a use value, his being the capitalist, but a commodity, not only use value, but value. And not just value, but surplus value. Why does it take Marx so long to get to such a simple definition of the capitalist? And does such a universal definition of this process oversimplify the process? Or to take this in a different direction, does Marx mean to make a broad argument here for the larger purpose of de-individualizing, quote, the capitalist under capitalism? And I think this touches on what we were talking about earlier, is the capitalist under capitalism is not actually trying to produce use values and things that we need for the day-to-day life. He's attempting to produce surplus value. So there has to be exploitation and there has to be the creation of things beyond what we actually need. The easiest way to break this down, even to like chuds, is just ask them, because they all have these like fantasies of like their 1950s madmen lifestyle that they could lead if they could just get the government out of the way. That's what they were saying. We we're all going to have like the Jetsons lifestyle in the 2000s, right? And in reality, what happened was some owners of the means of production got rich and everybody else kind of got shafted. It really comes down to trying to get people to understand that that's not just a result of government or the state in an abstract sense, as if they're all equal. It's a result of the capitalist mode of production and a state that is run by those same capitalists through corruption, which even the chuds will acknowledge. Yeah, but I thought... Trump was promising them flying cars in their new American cities. Another big opportunity is in transportation. Dozens of major companies in the United States and China are racing to develop vertical takeoff and landing vehicles for families and individuals. 
we just didn't give them long enough to put the freedom cities into practice. I think part of what makes this kind of surprising is it takes them so long to get to this concept of surplus value as well. I mean, we're in chapter seven here, and this seems to be really core to the socialist notion of how the world works. And I know I do this a lot on this, but I'm going to just chalk it up to his, the method that which he chose to employ um, when undertaking this text. I don't, I don't know what else to really say. I'm glad you brought up his method because there's a lot of points in this chapter where he sort of says contradictory things to his own method. Mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoyed Marx's self-critical attack on academia as a venerable institution on page 300. So in that chapter, in that area, he pantomimes the capitalist, arguing that his role as financier and overseer is a form of work before allowing a capitalist to exist. As the capitalist, he writes, there's a hearty laugh. The whole litany the capitalist has just recited was simply meant to pull the wool over our eyes. The capitalist does not care two pence for it. He leaves this and all similar subterfuges and conjuring tricks to the professors of political economy, and we all pay for it. So this brings up really two questions. Uh, So Marx and Engels conceived, as Nick was stating, of capital as being worthy of academic praise. So why does he take the opportunity to attack the very institution he is hoping to impress? And what role do modern intellectuals and academics, what do they have to give to movements on the left? Well, I mean, mainstream economists certainly don't have much. That's like the equivalent of what Marx is talking to right now. I mean, all I can think about right now is Richard Wolff like attacking like Janet Yellen on every podcast. He gets a chance to. Hell yeah, dude. You know, I love that shit. Right? Yeah, it's the best. I'm particularly disappointed, I might mention to you, in watching my classmate, Janet Yellen. She and I got our PhDs together at Yale at the same time. Watching her go out there and say what she was taught and I was taught is very different from what's coming out of her uh, party mouth at this point. Marx is constantly critiquing the economists and the liberal bourgeois theorists of his day, right, throughout this entire text. And this is like his dig at them saying, it's like, you're doing nothing but essentially manufacturing consent for this this whole process, you know? And I think we see this today still, right? The economists have just the special purpose of essentially just explaining away this system. Someone like Wolf has something useful for us where he can actually challenge this. But the vast majority of people that are given space in opinion pieces in the New York Times or The Economist, they have nothing to offer. The Economists are probably one of those estates in propping, propping up capitalism because they serve, I think, as he said elsewhere, that reinforce the mythology that everyone is forced to live under with today's mainstream economists is that I don't even think we could apply the label of political economists to them because the politics are not to be challenged. It's just the invisible hand kind of taking care of things. I would say it's more of like a rebranding. The economists now claim that what they're doing is apolitical, but it's still very much a political economy. It's just been sheared from even that string of reality that was keeping them in touch. And I think Mm -hmm. part of that's just a notion of history in that this was still a very transitional period. So there were economists for the aristocratic elite and economists for the rising bourgeoisie, and they were still duking it out. Yeah, like conservative liberals and radical liberals of the the time. (laughs) 
So I don't know that I have much by way of a probing question on the quotations that we're going to talk about on page 311 to 312, but it really stuck out to me as an example of how the value of human life to this day is based on its ability to generate profit. Quote, the instrument suffers the same fate as the man. Every day brings a man 24 hours nearer to his grave, although no one can tell accurately, merely looking at a man, how many days he has still to travel on that road. The difficulty, however, does not prevent life insurance companies from using the theory of averages to draw very accurate and, what is more, very profitable conclusions about the length of a man's life. So it is with the instruments of labor. So Marx appears to find this value system when used to value humanity to be vile, but with machinery it seems very appropriate. So does this say anything about his larger project in terms of how he's trying to value human life? and how he wants to value machinery and labor. So this gets to an even larger question of what is the purpose of man if the thing that Marx is valorizing the most is his labor power? Is there really more to life than labor power? He does get to a point where he's essentially talking about how man becomes an appendage of the machine. I think he's making the case here that human life is more valuable, but capitalism inherently tends towards trying to strip that human value away and reducing workers to machines. But at the same time, can you think of a single example of anything you could do that you consider meaningful that wouldn't require some kind of labor on your part? Even if it wasn't like physical labor, like even if you just had ideas. I think it, in capitalism, it's the tendency to try to exploit at a higher and higher rate to accumulate more and more profit based on surplus labor which dehumanizes people. I mean, we're talking about like intellectual work and things like that, right? Like when we talked about earlier and what you bring up right now, it's like where somebody's taking the time to actually, you know, maybe do art or produce a piece of literature, whatever it might be. And he also talks about how when you're just a cog in the machine, you're assigned like a very narrow task and it becomes drudgery. It's not just labor. It's the extraction of value from labor power that the capitalist is getting at. So an right. individual can exude labor without it being so alienated to the point where they're thinking about their labor power and its value and how to extract their value from their own labor power. That makes any more sense. Yeah. I think he's still kind of, even in making this joke, which you might just toss it off as a joke, he falls into this notion of talking about humanity in terms of value rather than just life. And it's, funny only in that I think we do that ourselves by accident. You know, I'm guilty of thinking like, man, I could really be doing this to a, to a, to a greater efficiency. You know, when I'm even thinking about writing episodes for a podcast, I'm thinking like, man, I really need to focus. I really need to get this done well, which is funny because it's, you know, this isn't what I do for a living. Uh, unless you guys out there want to make it what I do for a living, that'd be great. <laughs> We're still sort of trapped in that mindset, right? Mm-hmm. That gets to the larger way that I framed this episode. We are trapped in the mindsets of capitalism as we're trying to think in anti-capitalist ways or build an anti-capitalist reality. And it's hard. Yeah, and Marx probably wasn't immune to it either at some level. I think that's basically what I'm trying to say is there are snippets yeah. here where he just he doesn't quite know how to comprehend what labor or what life would look like beyond the system. And this really isn't the text where he even claims to make that articulation. So Marx sticks firmly to his conception of the labor theory of value when he wrote, 
quote, the means of production can never add more value to the product than they themselves possess independently of the process in which they assist, this being on page 314. We've talked about this before in terms of advertising, but it all seems really inaccurate, at least within our atomized consumer-driven economy. Consider shoes. The latest pair of Air Jordans cost $190, even though the materials that are used to produce them cost $10.75. The labor to produce them costs $2.43. Wastage is about $2.10, and the contracted factory profits $0.97 per shoe, meaning it costs Nike and the Jordan brand about $16.25 per pair of shoes. Does the labor theory of value explain this? Or is this the result of a new economic relation? The fact that a pair of $190 shoes cost $16.25 to create. I mean, I don't think this necessarily negates the labor theory of value because value and price sold aren't necessarily the same things. With this specific example, I think you have to start thinking about the impact of imperialism with labor. You talk about where shoes are produced at cheaper labor prices, and then wealth accumulation in some countries being greater than others as a result of, you know, primitive accumulation, colonialism, and imperialism. So I think you kind of have to grapple with what this looks like on the world stage. Like, where are those shoes being made and who's buying them? It's not just that simple transaction of, you know, labor inputs within kind of like a confined market, right? As maybe he was kind of forming this, looking at maybe how England operated, even though that was still going on at his time as well. It's definitely advanced. Just sort of gets to, as you were saying about the first volume versus the second volume versus the third versus the, the fourth that nobody talks about anymore. That he's taking certain things for granted in volume one. And one of them is perfectly functioning markets where items are sold at their value. Right. So when we try to think of this as a one-to-one -one comparison to reality, it just doesn't work because we don't live in perfectly functioning markets. I mean, we don't live in perfectly, ideally functioning anything. And Marx knows that, but he didn't feel like he would be capable of writing a coherent theory of capitalism without suspending some disbelief and holding some things to be idealized while talking about the realities on other levels. We're still very much in the building block stage of just the foundation of what capitalism is. What I will say, though, is that I think inherent in all of this theory of value and then this dissociation of price and the anarchy of the markets, as he describes it, is the foundation of what causes market crises. Like when value, prices, flow of money gets totally divorced from the reality of labor and what labor is actually being paid to put back into it. So there is a foundational thing there. I wonder what like Marx would have thought about a guy like Edward Bernays, who was like the guy who invented, I think what most people think of commodity fetishism, because I don't think that our understanding of commodity fetishism in the, the colloquial sense is really what it is, like uh, what Marx meant by it. Like, I don't think he meant literally fetishizing commodities. Like the glorification of the brand, making yeah. it like a cornerstone of society. I mean, this guy is literally who invented the idea of bacon and eggs for breakfast. He was just like, yeah, that's a good combination. You should eat it for breakfast. And people started doing that. To his credit, like, that's just great. That, that got considered a staple breakfast of Americana and was not a thing before this guy. He's one of those figures that I think of in history who seems like they 
read Marx and Engels or Lenin and then took it as an instruction manual for being the worst type of person you could possibly be. Vultures will say it was dung. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Ugh. Sorry. You deserve more for that. That was really good. Okay. It was a little off. You were making a serious point. Yeah, and I think we've talked a lot about advertising before, so I'm going to try to steer us towards a little bit of a different direction. I mean, it's part of the culture, though, too. Right. I mean, if we want to talk about, like, the cultural hegemony, I mean, fucking America is a giant billboard for bullshit. We, we're living in that, and it's affected how we think. Yeah. What are the limits of something like advertising or propaganda that has to work within reality? How much can it actually create reality or push things beyond what exists? How effective really is propaganda? Is it as effective as advertising? Mm. And I don't think we have an answer for that. It's just there is something valuable about cultural production and changing the way people think about the world around them. Just that advertising is a really easy thing to hate on because it does seem to be so effective at something that we kind of want to do ourselves. I'm just thinking of like pieces of Soviet propaganda. It's like you're trying to get this message out to the masses of people, right? To kind of create a desired result where like the Soviet propaganda case, it would be the creation and the buy-in of these new ideas in this new society, whereas the advertising is continue to build upon your collection of Air Jordans and overpay for these sneakers, you know, and that's just a microcosm of what this society is. But if you've already kind of laid hold of the state structure, you've got a better shot of utilizing propaganda more effectively. To stick to the Air Jordan example, is they have air? Either of you heard of this movie? About Phil Knight. Yes. And yeah. I guess the core conflict of the movie that's trying to be resolved is that Nike is like only number three in tennis shoe sales for basketball players. And they got to be number one by selling people Air Jordans, like commodifying a human being. And so there's something in our culture that actually likes those stories, you know, that celebrates the creation of this product so much that a movie that's almost two hours long yeah. is actually considered a box office hit. And all it's celebrating is Nike and their ability to sell sneakers. Jordan was happy to be commodified, too. Yeah, we as consumers of this movie are supposed to cheer that on. Mm -hmm. It's kind of sick. Jordan's got like a famous quote. I think someone approached him about like being, you know, more outspoken about activist things. And he's just said Republicans buy sneakers too, right? I think most people will remember Michael Jordan for being on a Wheaties box, which is like, I don't know, crazy to me, like to have that be your legacy. It's like obviously great basketball player and everything, but like for that to be like his iconic image, it's like the Wheaties guy. It's like... So chapter nine introduces a core political concept drawn from the pages of Capital, quote, exploitation, end quote. Marx concluded on page 326, after a bit of math, quote, the rate of surplus value is therefore an exact expression for the degree of exploitation of labor power by capital or of the worker by the capitalist, end quote. Marx argues exploitation is at the beating heart of the work under capitalism. But how do we imagine a future of work? As mentioned earlier, I believe Marx held a romantic appreciation for the act of work, even though it embodied exploitation under capitalism. Can we imagine what work might look like without exploitation, or will work always contain exploitation? And how is this addressed under already existing socialism? So we've already sort of talked around this issue, but I want to focus on it for a second. I mean, one thing I think we have to keep in mind with Marx is that Marx 
I mean, he didn't hate capitalism in, it, in its entirety. He did not appreciate what it did to labor, but he did understand that capitalism had productive benefits for society. He viewed it as a phase of human history. He viewed it as something that we could get beyond to make a better you know, world. But he recognized that capitalism was probably going to be part of building the world and the society with the means of production that could actually sustain a better world. And I think if we talk about actually existing socialism, China is a prime example of implementing capitalist markets, we'll call it what it is, under the Communist Party to achieve those things. Deng argued, along with a lot of other people in the party, that you know this is in line with Marx, to utilize capitalism's ability to unleash productive forces We've been arguing about how culture is built under material conditions and capitalism creates a culture that is devaluing labor because it only considers it in terms of value rather than actual human productivity or betterment of life. It's playing with fire. At what level should capitalism be unleashed under socialism so that it doesn't become totalizing in terms of how we imagine the use of our own time? If you think about it in terms of alienation, like I was describing earlier, like there's going to be some. And if you can dole that out in some kind of equitable, equitable way, sure. But if it's just like doled out by who can exploit somebody else the most, like under capitalism, it's like obviously it's not the way to go about it. How much exploitation should be tolerated in the socialism that we want to see in the future and in the socialism that we see around us? Because if we're arguing there's always going to be some exploitation, then we're arguing that there's also always going to be some cultural manipulation. Because people want to find value in the things that are around them, and that's how they do it, by creating common sense. You know, I need to be exploited because this is how this works. And it's a tough question to answer, especially as it relates to actually existing socialism, because we don't live there. Right. And I don't know what those conditions are. I don't know if there's a metric you can say, now we've got enough. I think that they would probably have a sense for when they think it's enough. They have like clear targets and they write documents, say, look, these are our plans and these are our timelines. But everybody pretends like we have no idea what the hell's going on. Their last meeting, the current timeline is set to 50 years. Western media was just focusing on like the number of T sets in front of the commissar. And, <laughs> yeah. But they actually produce documents as well. So, I mean, it is tough because like you want to be able to say, look, like no exploitation is acceptable. I just think that history is bearing out that that is an idealist position. I think honestly, in the US, you could say, given where our productive forces are at right now, you could make a very convincing argument that the rate of exploitation and the rate at which we need to develop still is much less because we have so much already. To go back to uh, an earlier point, Marx himself recognized the accomplishments of capitalism for like lifting right. people out of poverty. But it's funny because the people who are making those claims for capitalism are still talking about those same ones that Marx was talking about. Because once you get to like the 19th century, it's all socialism, baby. It's all like Russia and China lifting people out of poverty. When you're arguing as a socialist with people who talk about the benefits of capitalism, lifting humanity out of poverty or the industrial revolution or whatever, one, they are ignoring the mass exploitation that that was the result of. But also, again, it's like, what have you done for me lately? Those are people who are like using rhetoric to uphold the status quo as opposed to people who just want to see a literal better system implemented because they know that it is possible because they are 
living in a world where some countries have better standards of living, have universal healthcare even, or just like some kind of social benefits that Americans want. And then you start pushing for those and you get called some kind of idealist when in reality you are being much more materialist than the people who are just trying to use rhetoric from literally 200 years ago to defend their outdated exploitative system. I'd also be willing to admit that we're a lot more willing than most people to like take the fucking Chinese party of communists at their word when they talk about their programs and the things that they're delivering on than most people. And I still think that the reality is probably somewhere in between that and then what Americans think, because we have to be careful. Like when we're talking about Levi, you were asking like, how much capitalism do you allow in your socialism? How much exploitation do you allow to meet your goals of your socialist project? It's like, you could definitely get trapped in the ends, justify the means and start creating work camps for your own people. Like literally what the brainwashed Westerners are afraid of when they think of the word socialism. I don't think that's what's happening in China at all, but there is definitely a reality of what they are coming out of, things that they've dealt with for a long time. And that probably exists somewhere between what we are even hearing in our Chinese propaganda spaces. It's just the fact that a capitalist class has been allowed to emerge under the supervision of the CPC. It's just a fact, like nobody's disputing that. So the contradictions don't go away. We just still have to recognize this as a process and recognize what this has achieved and trust that they're going to do the right thing and that the Chinese people are going to do the right thing. There's a good book out now from Ken Hammond on 1804 books. It's called China's Revolution and the Quest for a Socialist Future. And it's a really readable thing. And I think it gives like a very good overview of why the decisions that were made were made. And it ends up in a position, it's like, yeah, like, look, we should all support this as a socialist construction project. To sort of illustrate my relationship to the concept of already existing socialism, I don't know where I stand on my level of openness to it, but I know that I'm willing to take the Chinese state, not based on their own media, but if I'm taking their mission at its word, I appreciate it way more than I take the American state and its stated mission on their word. I mean, we use these terms like we trust the the Chinese government or we have faith, but really our faith and our trust are based on what they claim to be on, not just blind. We're not just kneeling before Mao here. We're thinking about what are the material conditions that they're dealing with and how are they dealing with them and what are the possible limitations to how they could be dealing with them. And then in comparison, thinking about America and their own material conditions. And like we were saying, we're living in a place of overproduction, underdistribution, period. And there's Mm -hmm. no claim on the American state for redistribution or to make things actually better. I mean, China's building houses for people. We've got far more empty houses owned by BlackRock and parasites than we do homeless people. And we still let these people die out in the winter in in our cities. I I don't want to hear it. You know, and again, to your point, Levi, to use words like faith and everything like that, that's not true. We're reconciling, again, stated goals with actual material outputs. And then also just satisfaction studies done by like Harvard here. But like we can see the poverty alleviation campaigns. We can see the actual mechanisms of them kind of pulling back on being essentially the manufacturing port for the world, right? And actually focusing more on internal. Again, it doesn't happen overnight, but it's a process that's ongoing, especially under Xi, where they're focusing more on domestic production as well rather than just kind of creating cheap goods to, again, bring wealth into the country. 
take a point that Mike was making earlier as an aside that there's this sort of boogeyman, the socialists have these work camps that they're forcing labor in order to get better products at the most extreme exploitation. And, you know, these are such horrible, horrific stories that we can't fathom actually happening. Uh, yet they're happening in the United States. It's called the prison industrial complex. Literally what we're doing. Yeah. It's, it's horrible and unforgivable when it's done in a place like Soviet Union. Yet it's, it's common sense in America. We have to have these prisoners work. Like, well, why wouldn't they? I think that's where this concept of faith that we're talking about comes in. Because it's not actually faith or trust. It's just critical understanding of right. the comparison between. I mean, then when we get into like the realm of ideas, which continues to kind of support the construction of this project, then you can look at, okay, how is that structured over here versus there? And I don't know too much, but I'll just take the example of, you know, you always hear people screaming about, oh, the great firewall and shit like that. And it's like, well, if you're trying to create a culture that is not based on vapid consumerism and based on socialism, maybe you don't want all these ridiculous American notions of consumerism and everything like that. And the NED and the CIA, you know, funded documentaries to just infect your society. I'm more interested in holding to account the people within my own society. I would like to believe that the people within already existing socialism are doing the same for their own leaders. Because like we said, there is going to be exploitation in any system which has any level of capitalism in it. And maybe there's just going to be a level of exploitation that exists in socialism. We can't imagine ourselves beyond it. So there always needs to be a populace that's holding their leaders, their government, their structures of power to account. It's so depressing when you hear people say that the Chinese people are just under such an extreme level of oppression that they're incapable of even having concepts of holding that pressure to their own government. The revolution wasn't that long ago, y'all. Like, like, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's absolutely crazy. And I mean, no argument for me. I'm a huge proponent of take care of your own shit and shut the fuck up about other places. At least if you're going to complain about it, you shouldn't be offshoring your factories over there at the same time. You know, can't speak out of both sides of your mouth here. So many tangents I want to go off on. Like everything from like people thinking it's a conspiracy that there's like different algorithms for Chinese TikTok versus American TikTok. Or like people thinking that American companies are bad for using Chinese labor because they're using Uyghur slaves or something. It's like, oh my God, like these people will fall for literally anything. And they will always blame any external enemy except their own government that they claim to oppose or their own elites that they claim to oppose. Anything but those. The third and final section of chapter nine, Senior's Last Hour is a sequel of sorts to Marx's smackdown of that foolish dogma of Say's Law back in chapter 3. Like any good sequel, this features Marx tanning the hide of a new baddie in order to bolster the legitimacy of his own approach. So Nassau Sr., the Drummond Professor of Political Economy at Oxford, developed his theory of, quote, the last hour in his 1837 pamphlet, Letters on the Factory Act, building from an argument that the, quote, child labor law hurt British manufacturing. Senior argued the impending 10 Hours Act could actually destroy the British textile industry. Presented sympathetically, as if it were possible, Senior argued that a mill produced its total profit in the final hour of a worker's daily shift. If the workday went from 11 and a half hours down to 10 hours, the cotton mill might actually operate at a loss if they provided the same hourly wage. Thus, Senior concluded, 
Either the wages for the workers would have to drop precipitously low in order to fill the mill to remain profitable, or else the entire industry would go bankrupt. As Marx put it on page 333 to 334, quote, The capitalist invited Signor to Manchester. For his part, the professor has embodied the lecture he re received from the Manchester manufacturers in a pamphlet. Quoting Signor, he writes, quote, if the hours of work were reduced by one hour per day, prices remaining the same, the net profit would be destroyed. If they were reduced by one hour and a half, even the gross profit would be destroyed, end quote. In conclusion, Marx remarked, quote, and the professor calls this analysis. Using the figures of factory inspector Leonard Horner, Marx makes a real analysis of the effects of such regulations. And this Leonard Horner we'll talk a lot about next chapter. Quote, you see then that your assertion that the workman produces in the last hour but one, the value of his wages, and in the last hour your net profit, amounts to no more than this, that in the yard produced by him in two working hours, whether they are the first two or the last two hours of the working day, there are incorporated eleven and a half working hours, i.e. precisely as many hours as there are in his working day. And my assertion that in the first five and three-fourths hour he produces his wages, in the last five and three-fourths hour, your net profit amounts only to this, that you pay him for the former, but not for the latter, end quote. In the end, Marx shows how the reduction of one hour might reduce profits by 26 and two-thirds of a percent, but the overall profits remain 100%. All of this is an attack against the immoral arguments made by the vulgar economists ensconced in the academy on behalf of manufacturers and this is a quote from 336, the heart of a man is a wonderful thing, especially when it is carried in his wallet. So there are really three things on my mind in this takedown of Signor that are worth dwelling on. The first is where Marx shows his work to prove the exploitation of the worker within the factory. Although not nearly as punishing as hearing about linens and coats, it contains a lot of math. So how do people understand this presentation couched in math and the vicious takedown of a vulgar economist. Why does Marx choose this charged, yet incredibly dense presentation at this point? It's really just fundamental to his whole conception of what production of surplus value actually looks like in the factory. So, I mean, I think he really has to dispel this pretty quick, where, you know, the worker works for his own subsistence in the form of his wages for this amount of time. And then every incremental hour, every minute after that, goes to the production of surplus value. So it's not just that last hour that has some specific magic to it. Yeah, he's sort of just like showing his work on top of somebody that is this incredibly well-respected economist. Hey, look, I can do this math way easier than him. And not only that, I can show you how much easier I could do this math and prove this guy wrong. And he's a bullshit artist, right? It is fantastic. Like, on the guy's own territory. Marx lived during the time of Lincoln. When they were ending slavery, there was a lot of doom and gloom, sky's going to fall predictions about ending slavery and how that was going to destroy all of industry in the U.S. It's not really. They just adjust it because that's what capitalists do. They fucking accommodate and they make whatever accommodations they need to, whatever the market will bear. They just adjust. That's what everyone does now when businesses are saying no one wants to work anymore. They pull up 40 times over the last three centuries that people started saying the same thing in like print media all the way back to the printing press. Like, yeah, that's the easy way to do it is point out the hypocrisy. But then fucking big dick Mark comes in here with the math and he's like, no, actually, I could do the math better than you. And you were a total fraud. Like, I love that shit. 
so the second thing I'd like to talk about is this guy, Leonard Horner. But he wrote reports on the horrendous conditions within English factories in which Marx noted on page 334, quote, his services to the English working class will never be forgotten. And thanks to Horner's inclusion in Das Kapital, Marx might actually be right. So Marx will give greater context surrounding his appreciation for inspectors in the next reading. But suffice to say, there are conflicting factions within government which have an interest in curtailing the powers of the ascendant capitalists. So what are people's initial thoughts on seeing Marx gushing so unequivocally about someone who amounts to an obscure bourgeois figure pushing for basic reforms within factories? I mean, at this point, people are working to death 12 hours a day, right? So I think Marx has to be looking at it from the perspective of if we can give the working class time to organize and to study, that is a huge advancement. And it is a prerequisite step for us actually being able to get the proletariat to organize. So I think it's as simple as, you know, Marx was always in support of things that could help the working class. Tie this back to the original framing. It's creating a space where culture and thought can really thrive. If you're working 14, 15, 16 hours out of any 24-hour period, you literally just don't have time to imagine the next world. Yeah, you eat and sleep, and that's it. So the third is Marx's attack on the vulgar economists, which still rings true today. So modern economist J. Bradford DeLong argued Senor's pamphlet, by the time Marx wrote about it, had already dropped into obscurity. And that's a quote from that piece. And only continues to be considered today because of its evisceration here. Therefore claiming that if Marx hadn't eviscerated it, nobody would have even remembered this last hour argument. But that may be the point. Marx revealed that the economist, with air quotes, is a position of an intellectual who attempts to instill complacency in the masses, not one which challenges the masses to better understand their reality. How does this continue to be relevant, even as DeLong himself dismisses Senor entirely as a famous blunder, as though it's not continuing to happen? And there's a quotation I'd like to get from Senor where he writes, quote, It now finds that the original discoverer of the virtue of the last hour has since been so far improved as to include morals as well as profits, so that the duration of the labor of children is reduced to a full one hour, their morals together with the net profits of their employers will vanish, both behind dependent of this last, this final hour. So what Senior was arguing, even though it's a famous blunder, is that children should actually be going back to work and working more because it's good for their moral development, which is more or less what the legislature in Missouri is currently discussing. So is this a famous blunder, or is this how The Economist works in society? Jordan Peterson literally just tweeted that out. He was like, in response to some children being found working like McDonald's at like late hours doing like dangerous shit. He was like, oh no, they were working as opposed to like being trans by TikTok, whatever he said. It was really dumb. Yeah. As opposed to being children. Yeah. 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 In the minds of the conservatives, we're living in this crisis world of like this, you know, moral and societal decay, the trans people grooming. And it's also that nobody wants to work. Right. But in order to be like a just, righteous American, you need to be working. But again, so they're just doing the same thing all over again. Senor is speaking to these capitalists, factory owners, and it's just music to their own ears because they can get more surplus value out of these children out of that last hour. They just don't want to see any bit of that cut at all. But like the economists in the media are still serving the same function to 
keep up reality and get people to buy into it. People will claim that Marxists are these elitist because they're making arguments about society and how people should fit into it, which is against common sense. Whereas economists are just saying common sense things like, yeah, if, if a kid's not working and being exploited, that he's clearly going to be on TikTok being transed or, you know, whatever common sense they're going to claim. We all need to be careful and critical of how we understand the world, not for that sort of effete liberal way that we need to like be the change we want to see, but to just be constantly aware and critical of how the world is being described and articulated not only by people around us, but by ourselves, because we're guilty of being ensconced in something that we consider to be decay. So that decay is going to touch us no matter what we do. Yeah, as always, man, thanks for that and all the work and time and reading Gramsci, which sounds like it was a slog. Maybe I'll get to it eventually. <laughs> but um, Mike, thanks for joining. I'm really happy that you're committed to this project with us. So we got another three chapters down. Thanks for having me. I will, uh, each time I'm a little more prepared, which is not saying much, but. That's good, man. Well, the next reading is just one chapter. Just so happens that chapter is very long. It's a good one. It's a good one. So thanks for listening. Check out Turn Leftist on Instagram and follow us on Instagram as well. Reach out to us at interventionpod at gmail.com and get reading chapter 10. And we'll see you for God knows what next time. Talk to you later. Hit like, subscribe, write reviews. You know that thing you do for podcasts. Adios, paisanos. <laughs> there he is. That's my line, you bastard. They want to see what you made of. So they can know how-